0: Welcome to COVID-19 Public Health Policy and Culture. I'm Dr. April Moreno, presenting information from various sources about the COVID-19 pandemic from public health policy and cultural perspectives. We will be sharing international accounts from policy, public health response, and even personal experiences firsthand about living in this era of COVID-19. Welcome to episode number 18 of COVID-19 Public Health Policy and Culture, also known as COVID-19 PPC. I'm your host, Dr. April Moreno, and today we are talking about COVID-19 in Southern California. We're speaking to Farah Massoud, who is a faculty member of a university in Southern California. She's a lecturer in biostats and epidemiology, so she has plenty to share with us about what that's been like in terms of, she's talking about teaching epidemiology with students during a pandemic. So they're learning about infections and disease and rates and pandemic in real time. So what an interesting time to be a student of public health. So she's going to be sharing with us what she's seen regionally, and then the data that she has found around the country. So here in the United States, once again, we are Basically, at the very beginning of how to handle this pandemic, it's been several months now. We first began handling this, dealing with this in March, and it's almost like we haven't learned a thing. So, I thought that this podcast was going to be a relatively short adventure where we talk about this historic moment in time in terms of how quickly things have developed. But hey, now we're at a point where things are totally slowing down in terms of awareness knowledge and disease control. We are back almost at square one. In certain states, in certain locations, the numbers are spiking back up again. You know, we did have that conversation for a little while about flattening the curve, which did work at the very beginning. It did seem to work. People were scared at the beginning as we started to understand we needed to do some level of quarantine. And a lot of things shut down. And that was great. And then that part where people decided it was going to be phase two arbitrarily just because the economy needed it phase two began and then we had some protests we had some various social unrest even at the same time and then the numbers went back up and not only that it's just like that conversation of flattening the curve, it was great that we started all that. But then now it's like having that analysis and realizing, realization of the fact that the flattening the curve had very much to do with hospitals and their capacity to handle a surge. But it didn't do very much in terms of public awareness, knowledge, and them actually taking those advanced steps and measures into protecting themselves so here we are talking about cloth masks still here we are where people have gone back to restaurants and beaches and public parks and then about last week or so a lot of those places actually had to shut down again. So we actually had to retreat in certain locations where certain parking spaces in public parks and beaches had to shut down for 4th of July in certain locations and counties in California. So it's almost like a retreat phase. But even worse is that in certain states, the numbers are so high and out of control. But even nationally and internationally, If you look at John Hopkins, they've got a great resource center. They've got some great data that they've been working with on tracking the virus and the current status of things. And I'm going to share this in the show notes. This is a great document here that shows the different rates of daily positivity. So basically, this one here, Peru is at the top. Peru is at 40% of daily positivity. This means that of all the times people were getting tested, 40% of those tests were positive. Brazil is at 33.2. Qatar is next and then Mexico is next. They were both at 22 percent and then the fifth one there is chile at 21 percent at the moment so that is really good information and insight here for us to be able to see the fact that it is still spreading around the world we see countries here in the middle east south america we see mexico part of north america africa and parts of asia are on here as well so this pandemic is going to be here for a little while longer And so we're still going to be here for a while talking about the news and the different issues that's going on here. I see here in the news that also, uh, this looks like this was just three days ago where Brazil's president tests positive for coronavirus. He was tested positive on Tuesday. And then here, zooming back into the United States, talking here about Arizona, which is in the news at the moment. They are leading us in terms of national numbers they're at about 25 percent of that positivity rate so about a quarter of people that get tested are testing positive at the moment as of today they surpassed 116,000 cases in the state alone it's still interesting times we're still back at the beginning we are starting everything all over again so not only do we have a long way to go we also are basically starting all over again. And like I said in the last episode, I really believe that this country in particular is not going to see huge changes in controlling this virus until two things, one of two things happens. The first one is that we find the cure. We find a vaccine and we are able to access it easily and that everyone takes the vaccine uh, and we all like, are protected. And then it finally is like eradicated in some way to some extent. And then the second one is, and this is probably going to happen sooner than that, that people start to see people, they find out about family members and friends who are actually infected and going through serious health issues. And then they realize how serious this really is. So I think that one of these two things is going to happen before we actually are able to consciously be able to control this pandemic in the United States. And I'm not sure culturally what it's going to take in different countries, but here in the United States, we are going to be looking at this for a little while. I have no idea how this is going to turn out today. I want to introduce you to Farah Massoud and I hope you enjoy this episode. I just wanted to share the good news. If you are using Amazon quite frequently, and you have not signed on to Amazon Smile, please do so. Amazon Smile sends out a percentage of your purchases to a nonprofit of your choice. It's a great way to be able to donate without even noticing it. I wanted to talk about this because the Autoimmune Community Institute has become a 501c3 and is in need of donations. The Autoimmune Community Institute is dedicated to autoimmune health equity research and support as well as advocacy to the autoimmune community in the United States where it's located and providing community-based research, advocacy and support to a diversity of individuals who are living with any of the autoimmune diseases that are out there which are 80 or more identified official autoimmune conditions. So please consider signing on to Amazon Smile to donate a portion of your purchases to the Autoimmune Community Institute. Hello, and thank you for listening to this episode of COVID-19 Public Health Policy and Culture. Today, we're speaking about public health and the pandemic, the public health response to this, and then also the perspective of the data, the epidemiological data, and then also health disparities as a topic as it relates to this pandemic response. So today we're speaking with Farah Massoud. She's an old friend of mine from the university where we studied together. And she is currently faculty at the California University of Science and Medicine. So Thank you for joining us today, Farah.
1: Well, thank you for having me, April. It's been a while, mm-hmm. but we've been friends for quite a while, and it's great to see you and having this opportunity, of course. Thank you for having me on and your viewers also, your listeners. Just a bit about me, I guess. As April, Dr. Morena has mentioned, I'm a Masood, and I'm faculty at California University of Science and Medicine. I teach biostatistics and epidemiology. I'm also an exercise physiologist, biostatistician, and epidemiologist, as well as finishing up my doctorate in public health under Dr. Moreno's foundation, her nonprofit. I'm the research head and serve as the secretary for the board of directors for the Autoimmune Community Institute, as I mentioned, for which Dr. Moreno is founder and head. Today, I wanted to talk a bit more a bit about public health, as I know that this is. Public health. Yeah, public health policy is exactly our area, I would say, right? Mm -hmm. So excited about being here. So I'm going to talk a bit about the health disparities or the racial inequalities that we experience within the COVID cases that we're seeing and also within the COVID deaths that we're seeing around the nations. Being from California, specifically San Bernardino County, is one of the counties that are with the least socioeconomic status. I see the huge discrepancy every day working with other hospitals and clinics that you do see that discrepancy where most of the patients out there are are lower SES and from different ethnic backgrounds and you want to understand why that is and why we see that disparity and why we see them
0: being more sick than others Mm -hmm. so I wanted to address that just a bit. What have you seen in terms of numbers Mm -hmm. in San Bernardino County? In
1: terms of numbers in San Bernardino County, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read off some of the stats here. In terms of numbers, we actually, our county sort of controlled it quite well, just like the state of California. You know, when it started spreading, you know, everything was shut down and sort of we con- we tried to control it well compared to others. So at this point, we're at about 4,430 positive cases and our debt toll is about 176. Each death is um, important and it's sad, of course, but if you just look at the overall numbers out there, then I think um, we're trying to keep it low. And then for positive cases in regards to demographics, we have 49% of our cases are female and 50% are male. In regards to race and ethnicity, Asians are about 10%. Blacks are about 6%. Latinos about 55%, which is quite high. Uh, Whites are about 21% of the population, and um, multiracial and other, they're a smaller number. But that's what we see. We see the positive cases, um, and the death toll is, thankfully, not as high as in other areas.
0: Do you have any data on the age ranges of people who have died? Um, We do, actually
1: we are looking at between the age of zero and 17 we're about five percent but the highest number unfortunately is between 18 and 49 and I'm thinking that this is yeah 18 and 49 we have about 52 percent and 50 to 64 we have about 24 percent so it's between 18 and 49 that we see the highest number
0: hmm it's not interesting because <laughs> earlier on we were everyone was saying don't worry about it it's just the disabled it's just the older people yes not that that's okay but it was completely different. I mean, you do wonder, you
1: do wonder as to why this would be at the age range and whatnot. It could be that our population is in itself, is much younger. And maybe, you know, some of these communities that we see, the ethnic communities, such as the Latino communities specifically, they have larger families and more members and the younger generation there. So it could be that as it's spreading more in the Latino community than the others in San Bernardino counties. It could be various reasons.
0: We're able to look at the lifespan of the region. We might see some Connections there as well, or you have shorter life expectancies in San Bernardino County. I suspect. I
1: I would believe so. I would believe considering our lower SES and how healthcare and healthcare and overall health is related to SES and adversely related to, or negatively related to SES. Then I would say that we probably do have a lower lifespan than
0: other counties. And then also like, some comorbidities diabetes, asthma, things like that?
1: Of course. In our county, we have one of the highest rates of diabetes. And we have, being more of an ethnic population, African-American and Latina population, we see that there is a higher number of comorbidities, such as diabetes, cardiovascular disease. We also see hypertension, hypertension, and many other factors.
0: What do you think is going well out there in terms of the COVID response in San Bernardino?
1: I think what's going really well is that in comparison to our neighboring county, Riverside County, where their cases were much higher than ours and their death toll was much higher than ours. So compared to that, I think we took quick steps for just controlling the epidemic or the pandemic itself. I would say the people of the county themselves we you know the population took early steps and we just stayed inside and what was it shelter in place and whatnot and that really did help and even now i do see a lot of people practicing uh, face masks even though it's not required and then you don't see too much of partying and the thing is the county itself and size wise is pretty large Mm -hmm. so even with our population the land area itself, it's sort of like scattered. So it's sort of like a, you would get a suburban feel rather than the metropolitan feel as you would otherwise in Long Beach or those more, more dense
0: areas. Mm-hmm. That's true. It's a lot more separated. I mean, the geography of San Bernardino County just goes all the way out. It borders Nevada, right? It, just... it
1: does. It does. It borders Nevada. And sometimes you wonder if there are even people out there, but apparently there are. So we are spread out. So I think that sort of helped us out a bit. The size of the county itself and the population in regards to that size. Mm
0: -hmm. I even would think that the public health system in San Bernardino County and the culture, like a lot of the people that we've met over the years at school who work in the county, very proactive culture of data analytics. This is where ESRI is located, we've got all the GIS, we've got all the health data in San Bernardino County, it seems like we've got a really good infrastructure, a really good approach in terms of public health response in general.
1: I would think so. I think I would have to say that I have more experience working with Riverside County in specific. Oh, um, as I've just started with the San Bernardino County right now, but um, starting to learn more about San Bernardino County, but. Yeah, there is SV right here. It's a few blocks away from where I work. We do have that GIS and the technology um, right in our backyard. I guess I think what really did control it is us just taking those steps early mm-hmm. and managing it. And our county officials, I would say, learning quickly, quicker than most other people out there, and managing it in time. And I would say, you know what? Regardless of how many People, how many rules you make, it's usually the public you're more proud of if you're reducing the numbers because that tells you that they're the ones who are
0: following it. I love that. Yeah, so it's really good to hear that people have been pretty receptive to the guidelines. It sounds like, as residents of the county, the population has pretty much trusted what they've seen in terms of the disease spread and the warnings and the severity of everything that they were able to wear the mask and were willing to do the things that needed to be done staying at home i wanted to know if things are starting to open up over there like they are in la and in san diego
1: they are we are opening up over here but we're still a bit more cautious we're not going too fast We do, like everywhere else, restaurants are opening up, but it's usually pick up from outside. You see people in the park, but they keep that social distancing. Sometimes you do see a group of people, you know, just going, disregarding the mask completely and whatnot. I mean, I guess that's part of what it is. But overall, people, they have been following the rules, I would say. You don't see too many kids out. It's opening up, but you do have that sense of that there is a pandemic and people are practicing care.
0: About your students, as you teach epidemiology and you teach biostats, what are the kinds of conversations your students are having? What types of questions and discussions are emerging in your classroom? What are their concerns? What are their thoughts?
1: Well, you know what? To be honest, what happened is that We had just finished up a semester learning about pandemics and epidemiology and surveillance and whatnot, everything, you know, related to that. But by the time we got to the next semester and right before we ended, we had to, this would have been a great opportunity to have a one-on-one with them about pandemics, but we sort of had switched to another aspect of the class where this couldn't be bought into it. I mean, we couldn't incorporate it because we were working on research at that time. But this certainly will be a talking point for next year. Mm -hmm. And I look forward to that sort of designing the whole coursework around that. Mm -hmm. But this year, unfortunately, other than the fact that they, these four souls had to do the rest of their coursework online, that would be the only part where we had to talk about pandemic.
0: Other than that, we didn't get a chance. It's a shame, but it must be so interesting for them to be going through an epidemiology class and to experience pandemics firsthand as they're learning yeah what better experience what better learning is there
1: (laughs) absolutely I mean who could imagine you know you're learning about a pandemic and then you get a practical experience who gets
0: that so right um they certainly did yeah it's like a hundred year opportunity so in your opinion what can still be improved at this time
1: What can we improve at this time? I think there's so many things that can be improved. I would say we need to just start with improving our public health system. We need more prevention, prevention mechanisms. What else do we need? We need to just get ourselves, you know, have more awareness out there. And for those who are resistant to implementing, I would say, rules and regulations, for the safety
0: for the larger safety of everybody. What do you think we need to do to change that? How can we fix that? How can we change their minds before it's too late?
1: I mean a pandemic is hit and you, we have the numbers out there and I mean what else do you need? You need—you have the numbers, you see the death toll, you see the rising cases, you see the health disparities, you see who it's affecting the most and even when you see all of this and you have tangible evidence that this pandemic is as difficult I mean is as harsh as it as the numbers say it is and even then if we have people in charge or leadership not listening to that I mean at what point I guess it would be up to us as individuals or
0: just the public to keep ourselves safe at that point mm-hmm. yeah and it's become such an interesting time you know my background is also in public administration and then having this conversation of how politics, And then policy and public health are like clashing with each other at this time. So statistically, in terms of data, in terms of the science and clinical trials, all of that has one set of information that we're trying to share with the public. And then on the policy side, the policy is more of the, like, you know, how do we respond? But then you've got the political side and the economic side where they're just like, let's just get this over already and move on, you know, let's just try and get through this as quickly as possible, but it doesn't work that way. When you're working with virus, viruses, you're working with disease, pandemic, you can't decide I'm on this timeline and I'm going to make sure that everyone can go back out safely again tomorrow. Yeah, I That's think happening. I mean,
1: at this point, I'm not sure why our policy and our, I mean, we have different sectors working independently. Yeah. Because at this point, we need to work as one. Because there's just no way that we can tackle anything without working as one, as one unit. Because everything is interconnected at this point. I mean, it's a holistic approach to battling this virus mm-hmm. itself. Public health plays a huge role in this. But then again, we're at the front lines. It's the medical professionals. And so we're all intertwined, aren't we? Mm-hmm. And then there's policy as well. Suppose it's public health trying to control this, and then it's the medical professionals treating them. But then if there's no policy and we're not controlling that policy, what happens then? Mm-hmm. If we're not implementing rules out there, or rules or regulations are following through on it and concern more about just the economy itself, then it's just a waste. To even put out those preventive measures or have, you know, those people on the front lines going through all of whatever they're going through.
0: Right. Yeah. And I've heard stories about people just kind of giving up because they're just like, I'm here risking my life, my family's life. And then you're like yelling at me for wearing a mask in the store. This is not going to work. We can't do this. Yeah, absolutely. We can't negotiate this, you know? It's, It's challenging. And then in our two episodes ago, we met with someone, we spoke to someone who does contact tracing, and in her agency in public health, she says that the policies and the guidelines change, like, almost daily. You know, what you get from the CDC, what you get from the World Health Organization, and then what you get from the state and the county. All of these policies are continuously changing. So things are so turbulent at the moment. And it's really like you said that there's no there is no unified information. And if there were, it would be scattered, it would be, it would still be changing constantly. And it's it's just really hard to figure it this out.
1: We really need to be working together on this one because I don't think there's much of an option.
0: Mm-mm.
1: Regardless of what our political affiliations might be or what our interests are, or anything related to that, but all departments at this point, all of the US and even different sectors, you know, we need to be working together, whether that be businesses, medical system, healthcare system, everything needs to work together because we're it needs a unifying for unifying force just to combat this.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's a shame. It's like either we can learn that now or eventually we'll have to learn this because there's no way to get through it. I mean this is a rapidly multiplying virus. It's not like you can...
1: It's exponentially multiplying. And at this point, what do you do? I mean, how will you control an exponentially multiplying virus by opening up everything?
0: Yeah, I'm saying that, that it's okay here to not wear a mask, but over here you follow it, but it, it just doesn't matter. It doesn't.
1: It, it really doesn't. If you have enough people, if, we have two bordering counties and one has a higher debt toll and a higher, higher, much higher cases and much higher debt toll compared to the other county. All you need is to lift those restrictions and people crossing over. Exactly. And it's, it spreads. I mean, that's, that's all you need. So either we control ourselves now, we monitor ourselves now, and we take precautions now, or we end up in situations that we probably don't want to be in. Mm-hmm.
0: What's the context in the county for the huge rates of Hispanic and Black rates of infection and deaths? Has the county, have you all had conversations on the context of that? What types of work you're seeing? What types of situations are causing this disparity?
1: In the county itself, like I mentioned earlier, our populations are more mostly ethnic populations, Hispanic, African-Americans, and mostly the Hispanic populations. And then we have the white population. Along those lines, we do see there's more prevalence of some comorbidities or other diseases, such as diabetes, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, obesity, and whatnot. Mm
0: -hmm. And all of those... I guess, are we seeing trends? Are we seeing, like, the reasons why this is happening more? So you mentioned there's just a higher population of these groups anyway what needs to be improved still. So we are talking about health disparities. We've been seeing a lot of these trends in terms of African Americans dying disproportionately, the Hispanic population also dying disproportionately. Yeah, what have you seen from the research and the data out there?
1: The data actually is quite alarming. If you look at the health disparities in relation to the COVID-related deaths, in African-Americans and Hispanics. Considering what we're going through right now and in health inequity, inequity within African-Americans and just everything that's going on, I wanted to address that. I wanted to really address that one first. There was a study by the CDC and it looked at, looked at um, hospitalization rates in relation to COVID cases that were lab-confirmed COVID cases in 14 states. And It was alarming that what they found out is that out of 580 patients, they saw that one in three were African-Americans, which is about 33%. Mm -hmm. And then what was ironic was that only 13% of the U.S. population are African-Americans. So the prevalence is quite high. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: 45% of the hospitalizations were among whites, while whites make up about 76% of the U.S. population. So you could see where that discrepancy is. And then 8% are... 8% of the cases were among Hispanics, and Hispanics make up about 18% of the population. And then we see a whole prevalence of this and incidence much higher in the African-American population. And there's some more statistics that I wanted to share. African-Americans in Michigan were 41% in COVID-related deaths, when only 14% of that state's population were African-American. 32.5% in Illinois uh, was related to COVID-related deaths in African-Americans, while 14% population was also African-American. Louisiana, we had 33% of the population who are African-American. And then 70% of the state's coronavirus deaths were within that population. Wow. And the majority, yeah, it's it's quite alarming. And I mean, something that absolutely needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. And then the majority was in areas such as New Orleans. In New York City, Blacks and Latinos had twice we're twice as likely to die from the virus than white peers. So just some of these things are things that we can't overlook at this point. It's not just racial inequality in regards to police treatment, but in so many other factors where they're being undermined, I guess, their health and their, their economic status and their situations
0: they're living in. Okay, so what's the date of this report, just so that we know?
1: April or March Uh of this year. The first data was, of course, from the CDC. The other ones were from
0: public health institutions. So we started to see the protests because we were seeing a lot of police brutality. So many cases at the same time were being publicized. And I guess my question is about what's going to happen in the coming weeks. Just from our understanding, being in public health, you know, a group of people
1: gathering together, not wearing masks or whatnot, or if they're even if they're wearing masks, there is a high likelihood that the disease itself, the virus itself will spread. Mm-hmm. But if that were the case and most of the people out there were of the mi- were minorities, then you wonder why there are more cases coming in that were, you know, whites mm-hmm. inside these hospitals. So, y- you know, y- you sort of wonder then again, what's what's going on? Are they being... Um...
0: Yeah, I've heard some stories from contacts that I have where you can call the hospital with breathing difficulties, res- respiratory issues, suspecting that you have the virus or even having been tested. But if you... There's like some level of severity that you have to have in order to be admitted into the hospital or for them to even respond to your 911 call. So... I'm wondering what that is, because I've heard stories where people who are black, they were just saying, I was told I'm not high priority at this time. So there are people who are not, I think there are they may be showing up in the numbers in terms of deaths but they may not be showing up in terms of hospitalizations. What you were
1: mentioning is that the situation, not only should they be high priority, they should be the highest priority because they're at actually a high risk group. Because most of the underlying conditions that they have, health conditions, that would actually make them more susceptible to getting COVID, being diagnosed with COVID. So they have a higher diabetes rate, they have a higher hypertension rate, asthma rate, obesity rate, compared to the rest of the population. Uh-huh. So it's very important that the high risk group at this point, which would be African-Americans, be admitted in mm-hmm. if they're with the symptoms, because there's more of a likelihood that they're gonna be dying. And that's what we're seeing is that in hospitalizations, there are a higher number of whites who are being hospitalized. But then again, it's more people who are dying, more people with underlying conditions who are dying because of lack of hospitalizations.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I guess we could still mention that people can still be healthy. They can be really young and still be dying as well. But in terms of the trend, the likelihood, we're seeing that with the comorbidities or the, what do you call them, other issues, <laughs> Yeah, that that does increase the risk of major infection Or death. What can we do to improve this? I like the solution that you did mention, and I haven't heard a thing about it, that people of color, people with these other existing conditions would be prioritized for treatment and hospitalization. I have not seen that. So maybe that is a recommendation that should be out there unless it's In conversation now, I haven't heard it. That's an important one.
1: Absolutely, I think the people in any case. I mean, you would see that any high-risk group would be the ones that you want to, you know, keep safe, such as elderly. We know that the elderly people over sixty are higher risk of getting COVID. So, what do we do? We sort of keep them isolated. You, You know, we try not to go near them. The younger groups or the kids or whatnot. So we know where to prioritize. We know how to do that. So when it comes to race why do we back off? You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. why do we suddenly decide that, oh, no, this isn't the highest risk group when they they are one of the highest risk groups, if not the most highest risk mm-hmm. group, you know, mm-hmm. and it might not be absolutely really relate, related to age or this or that. But you do also have to understand that this group, they live in places that are that are more prone to spreading diseases. So they might that's going to contribute to a higher increase of that, regardless of whether they have underlying conditions or not. Mm -hmm. So if someone from that group says, you know what, I'm having symptoms, then that would be the person you want to get in first. Have them in first so that it doesn't at least spread more. Right. within that community because it's a close-knit community exactly. so we have to look at all of these factors not just health-wise or underlying conditions but environmental factors as well mm-hmm. and be culturally sensitive culturally sensitive to where they're living or their lifestyles they live and if you look at it most of the pop- jail populations are minorities african americans hispanics you see that and we know the numbers out there in relation to that and in in the jail system it's going to be much easier for COVID to spread and suppose these individuals are coming out and then it's going to be easier to spread in their communities so we need to get really focused on who who our target population is and who we want to concentrate on more of course every life is important every population is important but if we're seeing such huge discrepancies between death rates among certain racial groups, then we need to address that in many different ways, not just one.
0: It's a clear trend that we're seeing. So why aren't we prioritizing this? You know, these are some really good recommendations. And then also, this is what I wanted to say, this is so great to have this conversation as a public health conversation, because we can look at all these different social determinants of health and address COVID in that way. We're looking at lower SES where people do tend to live, you have larger families living in one space. You have smaller spaces where people are living with these large numbers. And then also we've seen some cultural competency, challenges of language and access to information. Being able to address things from all these different levels, all these different perspectives from the transportation to the housing, to the access to natural resources, to the safety, to the everything that we do in public health. And one of the major, oh, sorry. Yeah, it's just a great potential solution. I mean, it is the solution being able to approach it from all these different perspectives and levels of the social determinants.
1: Absolutely. And I think we need to take a pyramid approach at this, put social determinants at first, and then keep on going down. Because as you go down these steps in social determinants, whether that be SES, education, SES, and we're looking at income levels, healthcare, healthcare access is one of the major ones. So when we go down that pyramid, we see that we need to figure out why there would be so much discrepancy within all of these pyramids if you assign a pyramid to each racial category. Mm -hmm. Why are there discrepancies? And then why are there such significant discrepancies not just you know smaller numbers mm-hmm. and we need to address that and you can't just say you know what it's just a system so just coming back to your other question your previous question about protests and what we're going to be seeing in regards to COVID and the spread of COVID I'm sure background in epidemiology and just how the normal curve works. I suspect that their case, it's not controlled. I mean, a group of people being together and I'm sure it's going to rise. Mm-hmm. And I hope it doesn't, but probably will. But then we also, as public health people, and public health officials all over, I think, in our counties, we need to make sure that we are sort of tightening, in a way, tightening the regulations, I would say, or making sure that people are actually following it. Mm-hmm. And as individuals, yeah, absolutely, you know, I agree that when there's so much injustice in regards to race or anything in particular, then we do stand up. We, that's, that's our right to stand up and peacefully protest, of mm-hmm. course. Mm-hmm. But we, even while doing that, we need to make sure that we are in a pandemic. Mm-hmm. And it's not just about our right to have our right to be safe, our right to just addressing our rights, but we need to make sure that we're not doing the same thing that other people might be doing to us. And we need to make sure that we don't impede on somebody else's right by not covering our faces or not wearing those masks or not taking those safety precautions because we need to protect the other vulnerable population out there as well. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. The irony of what happened with George Floyd, with the police officer who had the knee to the neck, George Floyd was, he recovered from COVID-19 and then he died from this. That's, it's the irony of this and- It is. Addressing this as a public health issue, as a broader public health issue is also necessary. And trend is still there, whether we're looking at police violence or we're looking at COVID-19, we're looking at zip codes, we're looking at lifespan, the trend continues. And we see it disproportionately impacting the lives of African-Americans and Black people in the United States. So I still look to public health somehow. I don't know if it's gonna be at the agency level, but public health to me is, potentially the answer to solving a lot of these issues and challenges because of how broad and how many different ways we look to address healthcare in a way that the clinical community cannot, in a way that any other field can do. Public health has, and this is the best part about public health, is that we look at things from such an approach where we're looking at a huge system.
1: Absolutely, we are, we are looking at a huge system public health is prevention, it's policy, it's epidemiology, it's statistics. Our field itself is so broad. It's very important for us to have an integrative approach with other fields as well.
0: Yeah.
1: Outside of public health, such as the clinical community. And um, of course, policy is part of it. Policy would be just you know dealing outside as well. But um, we need to take that integrative approach to address most of the things that most of the concerns we were just talking about and if it wasn't if public health measures aren't being applied properly such as prevention then you'll see more of the cases out there of not just this virus but other things as well you know we were just talking about underlying conditions so it's not just going to be you know you're treating you need ventilators you're going to have to have other specialists out there too to be treating CVD, hypertension, or whatever may be occurring or complications that might be occurring due to COVID. So absolutely that public health is, its
0: I would say, one of the main foundations out there to address. So I have another question for you in terms of policy and the way that things are slowly reopening. We haven't even gotten control over the virus but things are slowly reopening now, restaurants are already open. I get it that people feel like their rights are
1: being violated, you know, where they're being forced to stay inside or this or that. And they really want everything to open up really quickly. But we also need to realize that sometimes what we want might not be what's best for us. You know, it's good that we're taking many steps to open things. but. Are we really ready or is our I think before we ask that question how have we reached out being public health how have we reached out to the general public and having them practice proper care Mm
0: -hmm.
1: or proper proper safety Mm -hmm. and are we a hundred percent sure that they're going to be practicing that when we open up their restaurant and when they go to the restroom and if not then what's the likelihood that one person, suppose one person in there is contagion and spreads around. Okay. And we know it's not going to be one person.
0: Right.
1: There is a very high likelihood that it is going to, you know, spread. So maybe we need to, it might be affecting the economy, but is it more important than people's lives? So little steps, of course, you know, open up the parks you know, little by little. But do you really want a group of people in a closed space? Because we are still contagious. We don't even know. I mean, are there aren't enough tests out there being done to even make sure whether a person has COVID or not. Or not. And we're not even sure about the classification of symptomology related. To, and we're not even sure what is absolutely considered to be COVID. How do we know a person is, I mean, they might not be symptomatic, but what about a person who just went through COVID and are they going to be, will they have traces of symptoms or will they be completely asymptomatic? I mean, we don't know. These are questions that need to be addressed before we go into policy about just opening up the country. I mean, that's a beautiful concept. Of course, we're the land of the free. I mean, I absolutely agree to it. I mean, I feel cooped up, but Safety is very important, too. And what comes next? You know, you
0: don't want to open up schools at this point or colleges at this point. I don't. Yeah. Do you have any other recommendations out there um, in terms of how we can address this? I think with COVID itself, we need to take it slowly.
1: I think we we need to realize that we are in a pandemic. And um, we don't, I mean, we just need to take it slow, you know, baby steps at this point. We haven't experienced, most of us haven't experienced something like this within the past 100 years, you know, and the world is quite globalized at this point. It's not like it was before. There's a higher chance of it spreading and even within the states and whatnot. So we need to make sure that, you know, we're taking precautionary methods. Follow follow the guidelines, WHO, CDC. We have great public health departments. Your local county public health departments definitely follow it. As for the racial disparities, I would have to say, address the social determinants, start with public health, address the social determinants, why is there so much discrepancy, you know, once we try to fix that, I think a lot of things will get fixed, in regards to reducing, um, not just COVID related deaths or cases, in African Americans or any type of minority, but any other health disparity or Unless disparity that we might see out there, morbidity or mortality? We have the
0: answer. (laughs) I think we do. I think it's just really an issue of implementation. It's a question of how it's going to be implemented. We see what the systemic issues are, but now the issue is how can we address all of these things? Not just myself or you or, you know, any
1: of us public health people. I'm sure there are many people out there, but unless and until we address it or create some sort of policy then we're just not I mean it's just I mean it's just talk until then or observation
0: and how are you taking care of yourself during this time how am I taking care of
1: myself I think um being a public health person epidemiologist I have to be a good role model I utilize prevention a lot preventive um techniques I um I'm constantly using the mask whenever I go out. Uh, Yes, sometimes I do miss it, but if I'm going to the mailbox, but, you know, wearing gloves, uh, sanitizing, cleaning the doorknobs and whatnot. And in regards to self-care, just, you know, I try to keep myself mentally and physically healthy, exercising. That really does help. Mentally keeping yourself well, you know, keeping your immune system well. And that's how you're going to you know what, keep yourself well, that's how you're gonna save the world at least 1% person at a time. Mm-hmm. And having kids and stuff and being in COVID and cooped up in a house it's just, it's not the most pleasant experience, but you do have to learn several techniques, whatever works for you to keep you sane.
0: What would you like to tell the world at this time? What do you wanna share or what do you think the world needs to hear at this time? I think at this time, I
1: strongly believe in selflessness, and I think that absolutely needs to be practiced right now. We need to not think about ourselves or our wants or needs at this point, but look at the, you know, the larger, broader community out there and just, you know, practice, um, you know, just practice safe, safe preventive measures. To keep not just yourself safe, but others as well. And once you do that, you realize that if you take that one step, it's not going to be a minor step. It's actually going to contribute to a much larger solution or a much larger treatment of the problem, I would say. And we underestimate ourselves. So every person at this time has that capability of making a huge difference and to be selfless and not think about ourselves at this point or what we want to do or how we want to enjoy ourselves, but stay home guys as much as you can and, you know, protect yourself and protect others as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Thank you. Sure. So you probably are aware by now that we use anchor.fm here on this podcast for COVID-19 PPC. And I wanted to tell you about anchor.fm because this is actually the second uh, podcast hosting software I've used And um, I really like it. I love how easy it is to use. I love the fact that it's free and they have so many tools here like music and all these different options that help you record and edit your podcast either from your phone or your PC or your computer and then Anchor distributes your podcast for you so that it can be on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and many more places. And then also you can even make money from your podcast with minimum with no minimum listenership. And it's all you need to make a podcast in one place. So if you're new to podcasting and you're interested in um getting started, I recommend anchor.fm. So what you can do is download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Um, that's my recommendation, and um, you know, after almost a year of podcasting, I'm really glad I found Anchor. Just recently, it just makes things so much easier, and uh, yeah, come check out Anchor FM. you enjoyed this episode if you have any questions any burning questions about COVID-19 feel free to send me a message in anchor anchor.fm slash COVID-19 PPC is our website and until next time stay well and take good care out there